about the, the visit of the Magi to the, the baby Jesus. Next week, we're not here, and we're at, at Calvin Christian School in the primary school. Derek Clack will be preaching from Psalm 90, and then the week after, Phil Haig will be preaching on our last Sunday of the year, and uh, looking forward to Phil preaching then, so thank you for doing that. So this will be my, my last sermon for 2019 here at Cornerstone. And on the 1st of January, I plan to plunge right back into our Revelation series, right back into the middle of Revelation chapter 6. If I haven't met you, my name's Campbell, uh, pastor here at Cornerstone. It's great to have you here. Special welcome to visitors. And I'd, I'd normally say, please stay behind for afternoon tea, but we have to clear the building by 12.30 today. But we do have a farewell picnic lunch with the McCausland family at Soundy Park. I've never been to Soundy Park. I think it's only a couple of blocks away. We all have uh, smartphones, so I'm sure we'll all find our way to Soundy Park. Well, I'll never forget our daughter Gabby's first Christmas. And she was about eight months old. And of course, the family was much more excited for her than she was herself. And I still have this picture in my mind of Gabby sitting in the middle of a living room floor, surrounded with mum, dad, aunts, uncles, grandma, and she had been given this, this pile of presents, and we had helped her open them. And I'll never forget seeing little Gabby there, sitting cross-legged on the floor, surrounded with, with all of these presents, and her attention was entirely fixated on a little piece of gold ribbon. <laughs> and that's all she wanted to look at, just a little piece of, of gold ribbon. That was the, the thing that, that most enthralled her on that Christmas day. And we, we, were of, we were, of course, trying to direct her attention to the real gifts, but she was just wanting to look at that, that bit of ribbon. What we thought were great gifts didn't quite match what she thought were were great gifts. And today we're going to look at God's great gift to us of a baby. And we're going to look at the three gifts that were given to that baby. And those three gifts explain to us why God gave us the baby, the baby Jesus. God's gift, as we're going to see, was highly valued by some, despised by others. And this different response to the baby Jesus asks us the question, how am I responding to God's gift? How am I responding to God's gift of his son here and now? So we've had Matthew chapter 2, verse 9 to 12 read to us. Let me just look back over those words. After they, that is the, the Magi, had heard the king, that's King Herod, they went on their way and went ahead of them, uh, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then... They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, 
frankincense, and myrrh. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will speak to us now by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. And so you'll see straight away that Matthew doesn't talk about three kings, does he? He talks about magi. And the magi were wise men. They were from the east. They were possibly Persian astrologers. They were definitely Gentiles. They were intellectuals, priests, people of influence. That's the magi. We don't know how many of them there were. We tend to assume because there were three gifts that there must have been three of them, but Matthew just says that there were more than one. Magi from the east. And I want you to notice their their reaction. Their reaction to, to finding the baby. And they had travelled far, probably from where Iran is today, down to Bethlehem in Israel. It would have been a long journey, an expensive journey, and they are following this, this star. And when they finally find the object of their searching, when they finally find the baby, Matthew tells us that they were overjoyed Thrilled, delighted, and they come to this baby. These wise men, these Gentile priests and intellectuals and leaders, and they prostrate themselves before the baby. Fell down, worshipped him. The word describes falling down before a king and kissing the hem of his robe. And that's the, the Magi. And then they open their treasures to present their treasures to the baby. And these magi show us whom Jesus came for. The magi's gifts show us why Jesus came. And King Herod and the magi exemplify to us two different responses to the coming of God's son. And so they are my three points this morning. The Magi show us whom Jesus came for. Secondly, the Magi's gifts show us why Jesus came. And thirdly, Herod and the Magi exemplify two different responses to Jesus. First of all, the Magi show us whom Jesus came for. Now, we need to go back in time a thousand years before the birth of Jesus, 3,000 years ago to think about the visit of a queen to a great king whose name was Solomon. Who was the queen? The queen of Sheba came to visit King Solomon, king of Israel, at the absolute peak of Israel's wealth and influence and power in the ancient Near East. Now, some say that that Sheba corresponds with modern-day Ethiopia. Others say that it corresponds with modern-day Arabia, the southern part of the Arabian Peninsula. It doesn't really matter. The point of of that visit from the Queen of Sheba to King Solomon is that a Gentile ruler, a pagan ruler, travelled a very long way to see God's king and in the book of 
1 Kings chapter 10, it tells us that she brought great tribute to Solomon. She listened to his wisdom. She listened to his wise words. And she gave him a vast treasure of gold and spices, all the best things from the land of Sheba. Now, I'm going back a thousand years before Jesus because this is what helps us to make sense of the coming of the Magi. We need to keep that visit in mind, the visit of the Queen of Sheba to King Solomon. Because Psalm 72 has a lot to say about that visit. And I'd like you to open, please, to Psalm 72. Please look to Psalm 72, and I'm reading from verse 8. And this is a psalm reflecting on that visit, that remarkable visit of the Queen of Sheba to Solomon. And this psalm teaches us that that visit of the Queen of Sheba to Solomon would prefigure what would happen when God's great Messiah would come, when God's Saviour would come. Look there at verse 8. May he... Rule from sea to sea. This is the Messiah, the Christ, the Saviour. And from the river to the ends of the earth, may the desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of distant shores bring tribute to him. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring him gifts. May all kings bow down to him and all nations serve him. You see what Psalm 72 is saying? It's saying that the visit of Sheba to Solomon would prefigure another visit. A visit of kings, of great ones, of great pagans, rulers, to the Christ, the Messiah, God's Saviour. Verse 12, For he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help, He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence for precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold from Sheba be given him. And so what we see as we look at the visit of the Queen of Sheba in 1 Kings 10 And then we look at Psalm 72 and its reflection on that visit. And then we go forward in time a thousand years to Matthew chapter 2. We see that the visit of the Magi is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Psalm 72. It is one of God's proofs that the baby is the great king, the Messiah, the Christ who was promised a thousand years before. In Psalm 72, the king, the visit of the Magi is God's proof that this baby is the promised king and saviour, the one who came to save all the world. You see, when God sent foreigners to see his son, to worship his son. When God sent Gentiles, pagans, people outside of Israel, foreigners to Israel, to go and to find and to worship Jesus, 
What was God doing? He was saying, not only is this proof that he is my promised Christ, but I have sent him for all peoples. I have sent my son to rescue and to deliver all people, people from across the globe, not just Jews from Israel, but people from every tribe and nation and tongue. And that's why the Apostle John said in his first letter, chapter 4, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Saviour of Israel. He didn't say that. He said, we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. Jesus is not the Saviour of the Jews. Jesus was not sent to one nation, is sent to rescue and to deliver people from all nations. And that's why at the end of Matthew's Gospel, when Jesus sends out his disciples, where does he send them in the Great Commission? Where does he send them? Therefore, go and make disciples of... Of what? All nations, all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And so for my last sermon in 2019, I have some questions for us that arise from this that we're seeing here in Matthew 2, that that God sent his son to be the saviour of all nations, of all people. My questions are, are these. Are we like the star in Matthew 2, pointing the way to Christ, to people from distant lands and nations? Are we pointing people to Christ, saying, he's this way, come. God's saviour, who loves the world, is here. Is our church evangelistic? Does evangelism drive us? Are are, are we driven to take the good news of Jesus Christ beyond the four walls of this building and out to our family, our friends, to our community? Is, is, Is that the culture of our church? Are we pushing outwards? Are people going from our church? Is our church sending people? Wasn't it so encouraging to pray for Michaela this morning? And to say, yes, go. Go to Hawaii, then go to Southeast Asia. And may that be the start of a life of missionary endeavour. And Paul and Fanny have come to us and said, pray for us, we want to go. And, and Jane has just got back from India. We've got Naomi over in Africa. And, and, and this is just the start, isn't it? This is just a few are we a church that is, that is sending? Are you going or are you sending? And I've got some more questions. When's the last time that I had a non-Christian over for dinner to befriend them? Not, not with the ulterior motive of just so that they, they might become a Christian one day, but to, to make friends real friends, 
of non-Christians, of unbelievers, and to let them see how Christ is working in our life and, and to, to look for those opportunities to point people to the Saviour. Who am I praying for? Which unbelievers am I praying for right now that they will come to be Christians and come to know Jesus? When's the last time I, I talked about Christ and the gospel with a non-Christian? Can I explain the gospel to a non-Christian? These are questions that arise from Matthew chapter 2 because God said, my, I, I sent my son for all the world. And the great commission of the church is to bring him to all the world. Secondly, the, the Magi's gifts show us why Jesus came. And it, it, it was popular for some time, particularly among the early church fathers, to allegorise the, the gifts, the three gifts, and to say something like, well, gold symbolised the royalty of Jesus. And myrrh symbolised the humanity of Jesus. And frankincense symbolised the deity of Jesus. And certainly Jesus is a great king and fully man and fully God. But we have to speculate somewhat to do that, don't we? We're not sure that, that that's the, the real meaning of the gifts. What's a certainty is that Matthew shows us pagans giving valuable tribute to Jesus Christ. These three items were immensely valuable. A small fortune in each one given to Christ. Yet, there are associations. The early church fathers were not way off by any means. There are associations. Gold is strongly associated with Solomon's reign. Frankincense and myrrh were used as part of the perfumed ointment to anoint the prophets and the priests and the kings of Israel. And myrrh had a particular usage. What was myrrh used for in the ancient world? Myrrh was used largely for burial. Largely for burial. A strange gift to give a baby. Something that you would normally give for a burial is given to a baby. And certainly, myrrh is closely associated with the death of Jesus. You remember that at the, at, at the very moment before they were going to drive the nails through his hands and feet, what did they do? They offered him a cup of wine mixed with, with myrrh. Some suggest it might have been a, some kind of a primitive anaesthetic. We don't know. But anyway, he was offered myrrh at the moment before the nails were driven through his hands and feet. And after he was taken down from the cross, we read that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus took the body of Jesus and they wrapped his body with cloths and 30 kilograms of myrrh. Fortune of myrrh. And, and, and this would have been to mask the... the the smell of decomposition normally. That's, that's why myrrh was normally applied to a dead body. And so we see that myrrh is closely associated with the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus. 
And so the Gospels themselves tell us that this gift of myrrh was a pointer, pointing forward to the end of the baby's life. It was a gift that, 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 that showed that this was a, a baby that was born to die. This baby came, was sent by God to die. And that's why we read. That's why Jesus himself said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. And he did that by dying. By dying to take away the sins of his people. At Christmas we sing joy to the world. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Amen. But he came to die. The baby was sent to die for sinners. And the myrrh reminds us of that fact. And this brings me to my third and final point, that, that Herod and the Magi show us, exemplified two responses to Jesus. Really, the the only two responses to Jesus. And I believe that, that, that what Matthew intends here is for us to look at how Herod responded to the birth of Jesus and to look at how the Magi responded to the birth of Jesus and to ask, which of those am I? Who am I in this picture? Am I Herod or am I the Magi? How am I responding to God sending the saviour of the world who came to die for the sins of the world. Well, King Herod, king of whom? King of the Jews. That's who Herod was, king of the Jews. The leader of the Jews. He should have been leading the celebrations, right? He should have been blasting the trumpet from Jerusalem. God's saviour and king has come. He should have been leading the procession to Bethlehem and throwing himself at the feet of God's Messiah and Saviour and King. And the Magi, pagans, probably astrologers, pagan priests, they should have cared less. They, 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 who, who's, who's the baby to them? A Jewish baby born in Bethlehem? Why, why would they care? So Herod should have been leading the praise. The Magi should have just stayed home if everything had been normal. Yet Herod was threatened and jealous and he wanted Jesus dead. And he sent his soldiers to Bethlehem to kill every child under the age of two in the hope of killing the baby Jesus. And the Magi, who we would expect would not care for the birth of a Jewish baby, come and throw themselves at the baby's feet and give of their greatest treasures. The Apostle John describes this dichotomy in his Gospel, in chapter 1. He said, He, that is Jesus, came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. 
Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so which am I in that picture? Who are you in that picture? Are you like Herod or like the Magi? And indeed, we do see in the world people who are strangely hostile to Jesus today. And I say strangely hostile because they tend to say first, I don't believe he even existed, but I really hate him. (laughs) And so it's strange, but we see this. And so we see people who have worked hard to change our dating system from B.C., and AD to BCE and CE. <laughs> What's the only reason you do that? What, what word are you removing? Christ. When you change BC before Christ to BCE before the so-called common era, you're removing the name of Christ. AD, what does that mean? Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. And so when you change that to CE, the the common era, you're you're removing the Lord. And whenever I see BCE and CE, I I always, I can't help thinking, this this so-called common era, well, when did it start then? What marks the start of this so-called common era? Why do we date it there? You can't avoid Christ. They've tried And there are those who have laboured hard to remove scripture classes from our schools. There are those like Richard Dawkins who delight in writing books ridiculing belief in God and the Bible. There are some people who are actively hostile. And Herod sent his soldiers to try to kill Jesus. But there are many more who are ambivalent. Well, I'm not sure. And I'm... And I don't care really about Jesus. Please think about that for a moment. This attitude of ambivalence towards Jesus, who is the creator of the world and who was sent to be the saviour of the world. When it comes to the creator of the world, your creator, you cannot be ambivalent. If a child is indifferent to her parents, what's that child actually expressing? It's actually hostility, isn't it? No parent who receives ambivalence or indifference from their child accepts that as a neutral state. It's hostility disguised. And, that, and Jesus knew that. And that's why he said, he who is not with me is against me. It's all or nothing with Jesus. And and, and so those who say that they are ambivalent towards Christ are just as hostile as your Richard Dawkins, just as hostile as your King Herod's. Ambivalence is hostility when it comes to Christ. It's the Magi who show us the way. God shone a light And they followed it. And if you're here this morning and you're not sure where you stand with with Jesus Christ, 
And maybe you, 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 you think you are ambivalent. I don't, I don't care. Don't want to know. It's not really interesting to me. Just like to get on my life, thanks, without worrying about Jesus. The Magi, these wise men bringing gifts, show us the way. Look at the, the, the tremendous time, energy, expense and resources that they went to to find the Saviour. And that is, is very often what it takes to become a Christian, to come to Christ, seeking, searching, pushing forward, making it a priority. And, and let me say from God's word that finding Jesus is what you must give your life to. That's me, that's every Christian in the room, but for those who are, are not yet Christians, finding Jesus is what you must devote your life to because your money, your possessions, your experiences, they're all going to disappear. Your reputation and accomplishments, they'll be forgotten. You cannot prolong your life forever or the lives of those you love. And every one of us is on the, the cusp of standing in the presence of, of a holy God for judgment. With his eyes of blazing fire which see everything we've done, every thought and word, every secret thing hidden in our hearts. We're all on the cusp of standing before a holy God. And what a dreadful thing to stand before God with our sin, unsaved, bearing the guilt of our sin. The most important thing is to find and to know and to trust the Saviour. That must be the life's work of every single one of us. The number one thing, to seek for the one who died for our sins, who washes away our sins, who gives us the imperishable riches of eternal life and who can give the same to those that we love. The most loving thing you can do for those around you is to find Jesus. The greatest gift you can give to those around you, to your family, to your friends, is to pursue Christ, to find him, to find the Saviour. Because when you have the Saviour, then you can bring the Saviour to others. Everything in life must come second to seeking Jesus Christ. Everything. The Magi show us the way. And Jesus himself said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And everything you need will be given to you as well. Don't worry about that. And in some ways, that's been the, the pole star of my own thinking. Seek first the kingdom of God. Everything else he promises will be taken care of. It's the pole star, but how hard, how hard is it to keep your eye on it? How hard is it not to be distracted by everything else? But we keep coming back to that. Seek first the kingdom of God. 
And I'd just like to finish with a, a, a little anecdote, if you don't mind, a, a little personal anecdote. I remember as an older teenager, and I knew enough about the Bible to know that I should seek Christ first. And I knew enough about my own heart to know that I wasn't. That I was seeking, there were other priorities, believe me, when I was 16 years old. And Jesus was pretty low down. And I, and I knew enough to know that I had to seek him first and I knew enough about me to know that I just wasn't. And so there's only one prayer that I can think of praying, and it was this. Give me a seeking heart. Give me that seeking heart. I don't have it, Lord. I don't seek you first. There's lots of other things I want much more than you. And I know that's wrong. Give me that seeking heart. Give me a heart that yearns for Christ. And in time... He changed my heart. And I wonder how many other people in the room could say amen to that. You know that the Lord gave you that seeking heart and turned you to find the Saviour. So Cornerstone, as we come to Christmas and the end of the year, the Magi show us the way. Christ came to die for the sins of the world, to give us life. Let's make everything second place to seeking him, pursuing him, driving towards that star. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and know that God will give you everything else you need. That he will give you the saviour. And that's the greatest thing. Let me pray. Yes, Father, as we read about the Magi, many of us confess, even after being Christians for many years, that our hearts stray and wander and we seek for all manner of passing things, things that will fade and perish. Give us seeking hearts. Give us the hearts of the Magi who travelled long and far with determination to find your son. I pray that your spirit will work in the hearts of every person in this room, that we may seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness knowing that everything else will be provided. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.